Well, tonight we come to the end of 1 Samuel, and 1 Samuel ends, of course, with the death of Saul. This is the turning point of Samuel as we move toward the reign of David. And this section from chapters 28 into the beginning of 2 Samuel, uh, it tells parallel stories of the decline of Saul and his house, his final days and his final acts, and the story of David as he is in deep cover, as it were, in Philistine territory. David has been in exile for over 16 months in the Philistine territory, passing himself off um, as fighting against the Philistines or fighting for the Philistines, but he's actually been fighting to defend uh, the people of God in the south, in Judah. Meanwhile, Saul is facing the crisis that will bring an end to his reign and the battle uh, in which he will die, he and his three sons. And so the story goes back and forth between these two accounts, the story of David in exile and the story of Saul and his last days. And it ends, the whole section ends with David's remarkable lament over his enemy or his persecutor, Saul, uh, and his son and David's good friend, Saul, uh, excuse me, Jonathan. There's a word or there's a phrase that occurs, and it's a kind of a bookend of these two accounts through this section, and the word is distress. Saul is in distress, and we see what he does when he is in distress, and David is in distress, and we see what he does. So I want to talk about Saul's distress and his circumstances. Remember that after he refused to fully carry out the ban against Amalek, and when he decided to preserve the king of the Amalekites, uh, Saul came, excuse me, Samuel came and declared to him that the kingdom was going to be torn from him. Uh, Saul had used or tried to use religion as a means of keeping his power rather than as a means to trust and obey God. It was a failure of trust in God based in fear of losing his place with the people. He refused to wipe out Amalek. He refused to place them entirely under the ban. uh, And he claimed it was for religious purposes. He claimed it was to sacrifice, as he said to Samuel, to the Lord your God. But it didn't reflect faith. In fact, it reflected rebellion and disobedience against God. In fact, Samuel, when he pronounces judgment on Saul, says that rebellion is like divination. And Saul's behavior in these chapters bears that out because Saul himself consults uh, a diviner. He consults a medium. He consults a witch. He's in desperate straits. God is not answering him. Uh, he can't, he's not having dreams. The ephah, nothing works in terms of hearing from God. He doesn't know what to do as all the Philistines gather. So he determines to go to a witch, uh, which he has banned the witches from the land, but apparently it wasn't thorough. So he tells his men this and they say, well, there's a witch in Endor. And he has this encounter in which he calls the witch to call up Samuel because he's like, well, Samuel was my counselor from of old and, and maybe Samuel will tell me what to do. And the scene reminds us of, uh, perhaps it reminds you of the magicians with Pharaoh, uh, because it seemed as though those magicians could do, indeed do magic of a sort, uh, but when it came to confronting Moses, Moses and the word of the Lord and the signs that God gave him to, pre- uh, to perform prevailed. Well, he, they, the witch does indeed call up Samuel, but it, it doesn't help Saul at all. Uh, In fact, Samuel says, why have you disturbed me? Uh, And Saul says, listen, God's not answering me. I don't know what to do. And Samuel says, well, I'm going to tell you what I told you before. The kingdom is being torn from you. 
uh, and tomorrow you will die, and David is going to replace you. So he says in 28.18, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. You and your sons are going to die tomorrow. And so Samuel falls prostrate. He is absolutely undone. He's at the end of his rope. Notice, too, that Samuel's career began by declaring that the house of Eli would fall and that his sons would die. And Samuel's career ends, or gets an epilogue, in which he declares as well that the house of Saul will end and that Saul's sons will die. Saul falls to pieces, and the medium, the witch, tries to comfort him and, in fact, offers him his last meal. So here's Saul, fully, uh, fully rejecting God, fully disobedient, uh, never availing of himself of repentance, and he ends by being fed his last meal by a witch. The next day, Saul is wounded on Mount Gilboa. He falls on his own sword, and that is his end. And the Philistines come, and they decapitate him and carry his body and put it on the walls of Beit Shan. So David, excuse me, Saul ends much like Goliath did, much like, uh, much like Dagon did smitten in the head. In fact, Saul has become uh, something himself like Goliath, something of the seed of the serpent, and his head is smitten off in the end. So that's Saul's distress and how Saul faced the distress that he faced. Now let's talk about David and his situation. Meanwhile, in Philistia, here's David, the crowned prince. God has anointed him via Samuel. Uh, He has been chosen to succeed Saul. And Saul has been pursuing him nonstop uh, because of his paranoia, because the Spirit of God has departed from him and an evil spirit of the Lord is on him. And David finally resorts after much running away and many encounters. He finally says, listen, I'm going to go to Philistine territory. That way, he's not going to chase me there. And indeed, that is what happens. David goes to Achish of Gath. Now, Gath is where, guess who's from? Anybody know who's from Gath? Goliath. This is Goliath's hometown. So David is in the heart, as it were, of enemy territory. In the court of Achish, who, if you'll remember before, ran him off because David pretended to be mad during that time. So here's David, as it were, under deep cover. And I want you to consider David's situation. He was determined not to grasp the throne. He was determined to honor the current anointed of the Lord. Uh, He indeed loved him and loved Jonathan, his son. And now he's in Philistine territory. There's no playbook here. David must face the crisis of knowing how to remain faithful to Yahweh in the midst of a pagan land, in the midst of a land, indeed, that is the enemy of the people of God. He's playing a very dangerous game, and he's there for 16 months. His game is essentially living in the south in the city of Ziklag, to report to Achish that he's fighting against the people of God, but indeed what he's doing is fighting against the enemies of the people of God. And in order to keep all of this covered, he makes sure to, uh, that he destroys everyone whom he fights so that word can't get back, back to Achish. It's something like a detective in a movie being in deep cover with a gang, right, and pretending to be one of them, but ultimately he's not. David's cover is deeply challenged, in the situation in which Achish is arising to go and fight with the Philistines against uh, the Israelites in the very fighting that will kill Saul. It says this in chapter 28, 1, 
In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. So consider, what's going to happen? Is David going to go and indeed fight against Israel? He's in a very dire situation. Notice what David says, too. He says, you shall know what your servant can do. It's a kind of ambiguous statement. I think David's intention, if he could pull it off, was fully to fight for Israel when it came down to it. But it doesn't come down to it because the elders of the Philistines say, excuse me, Achish, this is the one that they sing about. This is the one that says Saul's killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. And so the leaders refuse to let him go. And Achish says this to David in 29.6. Then Achish called David and said to him, as the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me, it seems right that you should march out and in, uh, march out and in with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to this day. Nevertheless, the Lords do not approve of you. David doesn't have to enter into that situation, and the Philistines go off to fight Israel, and David returns to his base of operations in Ziklag. And of course, as our text shows, when he gets there, Ziklag has been burned with fire, and the women and the children are gone, and they have been captured by the Amalekites. The Amalekites have a repeated theme here. Remember, that's who Saul was supposed to wipe out, and we're going to encounter another Amalekite in the midst of all this. David's men are so distraught that they seriously consider stoning David. So consider David. His own wives have been captured. Um, All of the community has been captured, and his men are getting ready to stone him. So David consults God, and he sets out in pursuit with 600 men. They get to the brook Besor, and 200 of the men can't go on. They're tired, and David says, that's fine, stay behind. So they continue. And on their way, they find an Egyptian slave who is as good as dead. They feed him, they give him drink, they revive him, and he tells his story. He says, well, I'm the slave of an Amalekite. I'm an Egyptian. And uh, he abandoned me three days ago because I was sick, and I haven't eaten or drank for three days. And so David says, listen, will you tell me where they are? And he says, sure, if you'll enter into covenant with me, that you'll not turn me back over to them and uh, that you'll, uh, you'll keep me safe. So he does. And they descend on the Amalekites. And the Amalekites are in absolute disarray. They've got all this booty because they have been raiding all along the south of Israel, and they're just partying like mad. And so David descends on them and defeats them, except for 400 who get away. This is Amalek, Amalek who fought Israel on the way out of Egypt. Uh, Amalek whom God sent Saul to utterly wipe out. Amalek who will show up in the figure of Mordecai uh, later on in the book of Esther. Not Mordecai. Yes, Mordecai. Thank you. Um, So at any rate, David rescues his people. He rescues his wives and their children. And he returns to the 200 who are at the brook. And remember that the the men who are with him said, well, you're not going to give them a a reward out of all of this. We did the fighting. They stayed behind. And David says, no, this is what we're going to do. And this is going to be the statute in Israel. Whenever we go out, whoever stays behind is going to get a share in the booty. Finally, at the end of this whole section, David hears his persecutor has died. 
And as I said, he laments over him rather than being relieved or relishing the fact that the one who has persecuted him is dead and he can finally take up his throne. David is one of the most important figures in the Old Testament pointing to Jesus. Uh, Perhaps no figure is mentioned more in the New Testament. No figure has more scenes and opportunities and situations in their life in which they figure and point and are a type of Christ. And I just want to mention some of the ways in this section in which we see Jesus as a type, excuse me, David as a type of Jesus. He is in exile among the nations, just as Jesus' base of operations was in Galilee of the Gentiles. David is in, as it were, a kind of enemy territory, just as Jesus for a time was in a region that was marked more by Gentile presence than by the presence of his people. He was outside of Jerusalem. This is his wilderness wandering. A Jewish leader, Saul, has been trying to kill him, and a Gentile leader declares him three times innocent, just like his own people, the leaders of his people in the Gospels were trying to kill Jesus, and Pilate declares him innocent three times. His followers want to stone him when they find out that their wives and their children have been kidnapped, just as the inhabitants of Nazareth wanted to push Jesus off a cliff when he comes and tells them that the scripture has been fulfilled in their presence. David gives rest to the weary. Consider that scene. Remember before when Saul was in pursuit of the Philistines, he made a rash and a foolish oath and said, none of my troops can eat until sundown because I'm going to be avenged on my enemies. David, on the other hand, says, these men are weary. You stay back and you rest. This is just like Jesus who invites us to take up his yoke and find rest. It is just like Jesus who who shows that kind of rest and gives that kind of mercy and gentleness to his followers. He shows kindness to an Egyptian slave. This is a remarkable scene in which this Egyptian slave is shown kindness, and it seems as though he's an Amalekite that doesn't need to be wiped out. He is like Rahab before, who seems to take shelter uh, under the anointed king of Israel. And this is reminiscent of Jesus ministering to the Syrophoenician woman, who is not one of the people of God, but who finds mercy and finds the healing of Jesus. He routes the enemies of his own people and rescues his people, just as Jesus routes demons that are oppressing his people, as we see in the ministry, in his ministry in all the Gospels. Being victorious, having routed the enemy, he gives gifts to men. Just as the scripture tells us in Psalm 68 and Paul says in Ephesians that when Jesus rose on high, he gave gifts to men. David comes back from the conquest victorious, distributing gifts, not only to the men who are with him, not only to the men who didn't fight in the battle, but who rested, but also to the leaders of the people of God in the south of Israel at the time. And he administers justice as a king. He's beginning to enter into his reign because he says, listen, this is going to be a statute that those who stay behind receive a share in the booty. And this is a fulfillment of the teaching in the Torah, in the book of Numbers, which teaches something very similar. Finally, at the end, David loves his enemies. In particular, he loves Saul by lamenting over Saul rather than relishing Saul's death and rejoicing at his death. So David, as it were, enters into the suffering of the Messiah. Of course, Jesus suffered before he entered into his glory, and this is a period of time in which David has been wandering in the wilderness and suffering before he enters into his glory. So why does David typify Jesus in this way? I want to go back to distress. Remember I said that Saul was in distress, 
and that uh, David was in distress. When Saul was in distress, he sought out any remedy but God. When Saul was in distress, he used the faith of Israel for a kind of a show to show people that he was a good religious king. He often is confused. He seems to engage in seeking God, but kind of half-heartedly and in a a misunderstood way. He seems to think that the religion of Israel, the faith of Israel, is some kind of impersonal religious technology by which you can get something out of God. And never does he seem to actually repent. He laments his loss of face. He laments his loss. He he, uh, regrets his loss of power but he never turns to God in a kind of repentance that David seems capable of. But when David was in distress, what did he do? It says that he strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. He is in the same kind of distress. He is in a very difficult situation in which he does not know what to do and he needs help, and he strengthens himself in the Lord his God, and that makes all the difference between Saul and David that David knew how to strengthen himself in the Lord his God. He cut his teeth as a young man watching sheep and learning to find God's help and learning to seek God's presence when he was alone with his father's sheep. I imagine the seeds of many of the Psalms started with David's time with his father's sheep, praying and seeking God and looking for the help that God would give him. Now in greater distress, David does what he always does in his life when he's in distress. He strengthens himself in the Lord his God. He doesn't blame the people who are with him for their uh, situation. He doesn't wallow in self-pity. He doesn't descend into passivity like Saul often did. He seeks God's help and guidance, and then he he acts wisely. And with God's help, he succeeds. Now, I want to hold up David as a type of Jesus, not because I want to encourage us to sort of moralistically imitate all the things he did. Okay, well, we need to do this and we need to do this. I want us to imitate David in this particular way, that David learned and consistently in his life strengthened himself in the Lord his God. We imitate him in this because we are grafted in to the branch of Jesse, the son of David. The people of God are grafted in to Jesus. And through Jesus, the true vine, we receive the grace and the gift of the Holy Spirit. We grow in grace, as we're told to do in the New Testament. It's such a great line. We grow in grace. I believe David grew year after year in the grace and the help of God. We rest and receive his presence. We seek his presence. We seek his wisdom and his help. We grow in that grace, learning like Timothy, As Paul told Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And we learn increasingly to train, as it were, train our lives in his grace. This strengthening himself is how David faced the distress of his life. This strengthening himself is how Paul can say, listen, we are afflicted, but not destroyed. That distress is inevitable in the Christian life. Distress of some kind is inevitable for the people of God. We will always find distress. But we're called to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and to learn to, stre- excuse me, learn to strengthen ourselves in the love that comes from God through Jesus and the grace of his Holy Spirit. David did that by desiring God's presence, by desiring to be with him. David did it by studying his law. David is clearly someone who understood God's teaching and understood how it applied in various circumstances. 
David did it as he allowed his identity to be formed not as a great warrior, not as this family or that family, but as one welcomed by God and his kindness. He took action on, the ha- on behalf of the people of God. And we are called to the same sort of thing as we, gr- as we strengthen ourselves in the grace of God to be able to act wisely on behalf of the people of God to build them up. If you want to know how David strengthened himself in the grace of God, look at the Psalms. I think the Psalms give us a window into David's devotional life. They give us a window into what he did when he was in distress. And some Psalms show him in deep distress. Tonight, I want to just close by reading Psalm 27 and just suggest some ways as I read it that you can see how David strengthened himself in the Lord his God and how it was key to finding God with him. Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. David understood that God enlightened everything in his life. He made sense of everything by reference to and recourse to God. And because he saw God as sovereign, because he saw God as loving and powerful, because he knew God's help, he knew that there was no, nothing that, that could sh- bring fear that would ultimately destabilize him. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in his temple. David strengthened himself in the Lord because he didn't want to use God to, re- to accomplish his ends, but because he wanted to enjoy God. He wanted to be in God's presence. He understood that God was beautiful and glorious, and his great desire of his heart was to be in his presence. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me on high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. I think David said that I'm, it's as if I'm sheltered by God. It's as if I'm up in a rock, and I believe he meant this when he was in crisis, when he was smack in the middle of the crises that, that, that plagued his life. I think he could say this. Verse 7, hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O O cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. We don't have any text in the scripture that says David's parents forsook him. It may be that he's saying, even if my mother and father, from whom I receive my identity, forsake me, I will let my identity be shaped by the one who welcomes me, the one who has called me to seek him and has welcomed me into his house. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me on a level path because of mine enemies. Give give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. David said, teach me your way. He didn't see God's law as something burdensome, but he saw God's law as something life-giving. He saw it as a treasure to be pursued, and he knew that he needed God's help to pursue it. I believe that I shall look on the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. 
wait for the Lord. David said, I believe I'll see the goodness of God in the land of the living. In other words, I'm not going to die. But through God's help, I'm going to overcome this situation, these circumstances. I'm going to find his help in my life as I know it now and the distress I know it. And he did it because he strengthened himself in the Lord. May we be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. May we learn increasingly to strengthen ourselves in the love that comes from God through Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. And may we as a people grow in grace from year to year. Amen? Amen. Well, pray with me. Let's stand up. We're going to come to the table.